In the late 90s, there was a pastor from one of the most prominent and successful megachurches in the whole world. And this pastor made a phone call. And that phone call was to a philosopher. And that philosopher was Dallas Willard. You may have heard of him. He's a very famous Christian writer. The question that this megachurch pastor asked to the philosopher was this. He said, what must I do to become the person I want to be? This pastor was very successful by earthly standards. Church was growing. Pastor was very popular, sought as a speaker at conferences. He had many books on the go. And yet he felt exhausted and miserable. And he was asking this philosopher, what do I need to do to become the version of myself that I want to be? What will help me thrive? Do I need to add something? Do I need to take something away? Do I need to exercise more, drink more water, sleep more? Do I need to cut out bad thoughts? Do I need to harness the power of positive thinking? What would you say if a megachurch pastor asked you that question? Or if a friend asked you for advice, what would you tell them? Or if you were trying to answer this question for yourself, what would you tell yourself to do? This is what Willard said. Willard responded with this. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. The pastor responded, okay, what else? There's another long pause. And Dallas Willard said, there is nothing else. Hurry is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. You must ruthlessly eliminate hurry from your life. I don't know about you, I was not expecting that. Not only did he say that hurry is this personal problem of the pastor, he said it is the great enemy of spiritual life in our day. It's not the decline of Christianity in the Western world. It's not biblical illiteracy within the church. It's not, um, you know, like the, the attack on the family. It's not political forces or postmodernism or secularism, but hurry. He said that's the most dangerous thing, the greatest threat to spiritual life right now. Seems strange, but it's interesting because Willard was actually kind of in keeping with discoveries in other fields of inquiry. The American Psychological Association has um, named a type of sickness or a type of illness called hurry sickness. Hurry sickness, and they describe it as this. A behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Continual rushing and anxiousness. Does that sound familiar? Do you know what that feels like? The drain of being busy, of having too many things to do. You don't have time for the things you want to do. You don't have time to pour into the people you want to. And by the time you actually get just a moment to breathe, you're so exhausted, you just want to veg out and do nothing. You can't even be productive in your spare time because you're too busy during the rest of your time as well. Does anyone know this? This bone deep tiredness that's not just you know in your body, but it's in your soul. It seeps into who you are. If so, you're not alone. But Jesus invites us in Matthew 11 to come to him. He says, come to me, all you who are tired and weary, and I will give you rest. My yoke is easy and my burden is light. So today we're gonna explore this this way of living, this way of shouldering the burden of life itself with Jesus that he says is easy and light. So turn to Mark 5. 
as we explore this remedy, this solution to the malaise of modern life. We're several weeks into our current series now called Made New to Renew, where we're trying to answer this question. What is my salvation for? Easter happens, Jesus rises from the dead, he dies for our sins, he puts us back into right relationship with God. And now what? What, what do I do with my life as a Christian? Do I just hang around for a few decades and wait to go to heaven? Is the Christian life saying the sinner's prayer and then just waiting for eternity? It's kind of this hole in evangelical existentialism. And the truth is this. The truth of Christianity, the good news of the gospel, includes atonement, that Jesus died, he paid the price for our sins, that he restored us to right relationship with God, that he credited us with right standing with God, that we're adopted back into God's family. We're learning all this in Romans. That's true. The truth of Christianity includes atonement, but it's not only atonement, but when we are restored back into right relationship with God, we actually are joining this journey this mission, this great plan of God as he's redeeming all things back to himself. We are made new to renew. We are healed and we're helping to heal the world. So your renewal and the world's renewal are not at odds. They're actually intertwined. Our growing in godliness and the coming of the kingdom of heaven are part and parcel. This is actually that, that 45 degree function that we talked about on Good Friday. Not to detour too much from this, but you even see this intertwining in the words themselves. The root word for salvation, one of the words that we use for it is sozo, S-O-Z-O. And that's also a word that's used for healing. When it says that Jesus healed someone, it's the same word that's used as salvation. The context kind of determines the, the meaning of the term at that time. Even the word salvation has the word salve in it, which is what you put on a wound. So our salvation and the world, world's healing, and the term salvation and healing, they're kind of two sides of the same coin. And so in this series, Made New to Renew, we're kind of cruising at 30,000 feet over these broad areas of our life on earth. And we're learning how in these, our renewal leads to also the renewal of the world. So Pastor Sunder has shared about money. He's talked about work. And in these, he showed how we are freed from something and we are freed for something. So we're liberated from something, but that liberation actually is for something else. This is the language of Romans. This is a good Augustinian concept, and this will do us very well for this series. So the first series, pardon me, the first message that Pastor Sunder spoke on was about money. And he said that we are free from things and free for generosity. We are freed from the tyranny of things, from the love of money, from serving the almighty dollar. And when we're freed from this, we're actually freed up for generosity. We're free to use our finances to bless the people around us. So this is our renewal. We're being freed from this thing, but it's actually also for the renewal of the world. That's when Pastor Center talked about money. Then he talked about work. And with work, he showed that we are free from pride and we are free for service. We're free from pride in the workplace, from using people just as rungs in a ladder that we're trying to climb up, whether it's, you know, a socioeconomic ladder or a career ladder or a ladder of prestige, the social ladder. If, 
If we're freed from the pride of seeking our own fame and glory, we're actually freed up for using our work as a a way to serve other people and to bless the world as well. So we've talked about money, we've talked about work, and today we're going to be looking at how we are free from hurry and we are free for rest. So as those who have dedicated their lives to walking with Jesus, we're going to be doing a a broad survey. We're going to be looking at several different interactions in the life of Jesus himself, and we're going to be trying to draw some truths from this. Normally, we pick one passage and we dive deep into it. Today is going to be a broad survey of a lot of stuff, and in the following weeks, we're actually going to be diving deeper. So let's look at three different passages, three different interactions and parables that Jesus tells. The first is in Mark chapter 5. Verses 21 to 36. I'm reading from the ESV. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So Jesus is going with this man whose daughter is dying and he's begging him, please come, lay your hands on my daughter. Jesus comes. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned around in the crowd and said, who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, you, you see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, who touched me? <laughs> the disciples were saying, everyone's touching you, Jesus. It's a crowd, okay? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. So interestingly enough, Jesus, he's already being interrupted by this man who says, come and help my daughter. So Jesus is already interrupted and he's detouring from whatever he had at hand. And in the middle of the detour, he notices someone touch his clothes. He's that present, he's that attuned. And in all the hustle and bustle of the crowd, Jesus asks and stops who did it. So he makes another detour from his original detour. His interruption is interrupted. The poor woman coming forward in fear and trembling, she reveals her condition to him. Jesus says, daughter, go and be healed of your disease. So Jesus detours from his task to meet the present pain of the people around him. That's example one. Let's look at passage number two. Luke 10, verses 30 to 37. Matthew, Mark, Luke. It's just the next book over. Jesus replied, so Jesus is talking to someone who asks him, who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. 
Now, by chance, a priest was going down that road. A priest is coming. It's like a pastor. Great, this person will help. A priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. No help to be found there. So likewise, a Levite, kind of like a priest as well. He's in that pastoral class. When he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. Two for two, the religious people of no help. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. He went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii, denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, the one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, you go and do likewise. So now the exemplar in this story is the person who detours from their task at hand to meet the present pain of the people in their midst. And at expense to themselves, pours out oil and wine, takes him to an inn, pays for it, says, I'm going to come back later and settle accounts. And this person is a Samaritan as well. They'd be referred to as half-breeds. Racially, there was no more tension and division than between the people of Israel and Samaritans at the time. And yet Jesus puts him forward as the exemplar in this story, the person who detours from their task to meet the present pain of the people around them. Last one, John 11, 1 to 7. This should also sound familiar. It's from Good Friday. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So this is some of the background. There's, there's some history to this family. They've gone through a lot together. There's a lot of love and affection between these parties. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He did love these people. It wasn't someone that he didn't care about, was like, okay, well, he's sick, cool, go on. It says he loved these people. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Interestingly enough, in the first two examples, Jesus, or the person in this parable, are willing to detour from their plans, from whatever they're doing, to meet the present pain of the people. But in this case, Jesus also isn't moved by things that come up. So in some cases, we see Jesus, the flexibility of Jesus to meet things that arise. And yet in this last story, Jesus isn't moved by other things that arise as well. So we see someone... In this place, if you had to describe Jesus from these stories, what characteristics would you say? Perhaps relaxed? What I would say is this. We see in these passages that Jesus is unhurried. Unhurried. How many of his interactions in the Gospels are interruptions? And why does this matter? There's a, a Finnish proverb, uh, an old saying from Finland that goes like this. God did not create hurry. God did not create it. Think about this. Um, John Mark Comer makes this point. What is the most valuable commodity 
in God's kingdom, in the kingdom of heaven? That's an, ansi, an, that's an easy answer. The most valuable commodity is love. Jesus makes this very clear. He's asked, what's the greatest commandment in the Torah? And he says, you will love God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. And he adds on one more thing. Second to this is to love your neighbor as yourself. And he leaves it at that. Love God, most importantly, and from that, love others. Yet, we know that love is time-consuming. It's not efficient at all. Love is not an expedient exercise. Parents know this. Spouses know this. Family members know this. Long-term friends know this. Love is not quick. It's not efficient at all. Hurry and love, absolutely incompatible. All of my worst moments as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, and as a human being, all of my worst moments or when I'm in a hurry, when I'm late for something, when I'm trying to get my to-do list done, when I've crammed too many things in my day, I just ooze tension, impatience, and anger. And these are antithetical to love itself. If you don't believe me, just try this. Next time you're on your way to an appointment and you're running late and you're in the left passing lane, but the person in front of you isn't passing, Ask yourself how loving you are. God bless you. I'm passing the peace to their bumper. I got to get close to them, right? 100%. Hurry and love are incompatible. Uh, if you asked my wife, Rebecca, what are some of the hardest things about our first year of marriage, she would probably tell you one of the hardest things about our first year of marriage has been my refusal to rest. She would probably tell you that. My refusal to rest and all that spills over from that. If I'm preaching three weeks in a row, I won't take a day off for three weeks in a row. And that's not her fault. That's not Bayview's fault. That's on me. My inability to take my hand off the wheel. And I feel like I need to just perfect things for a while. And I'm entering another three weeks of teaching. And I'm kind of nervous to see if I'm going to fail again at resting in this. Dallas Willard said that I cannot live in the kingdom of God with a hurried soul. There's actually a lot of good wisdom on this. Carl Jung, he's a famous psychologist. He helped uh, introduce the distinction between introversion and extroversion. A lot of his work influenced the Myers-Briggs personality test. He said this, hurry isn't of the devil, it is the devil. It's not of the devil, hurry is the devil. Corey Ten Boom, she said this, if the devil can't make us bad, he will make us busy. And John Ortberg, he said this, hurry is not just a disordered schedule, hurry is a disordered heart. Do you see this relationship between hurry and how antithetical it is with loving God and loving others? Michael Zigarelli, he's a Christian leadership scholar, professor, researcher, writer. He actually did a really good job of spelling out how hurry erodes the spiritual life. He said this, it may be the case that one, Christians are assimilating to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload, which leads to, two, God becoming more marginalized in Christians' lives, which leads to, three, a deteriorating relationship with God, which leads to, four, Christians becoming even more vulnerable to adopting secular assumptions about how to live, which leads to five, more conformity to a culture of busyness, hurry, and overload. And the cycle begins. So we're influenced by the busyness of our culture. 
Because of that, we neglect our spiritual walk. And because we're neglecting our spiritual walk, we're so much more susceptible to be discipled and catechized by our culture, which makes us more busy, which makes us less in-depth with our spiritual relationship, and it's just this perpetual negative feedback loop. And so today, a number of historical circumstances are kind of intersecting and overlapping and conspiring to do, produce a climate where it's difficult, not even just to think about God and pray, but really have any kind of interior depth whatsoever. For, for any reason, or for no reason in particular, good or bad, we're distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. For perhaps most people in the secular Western world, I would guess the average person you come up to on the street probably doesn't have anything in particular against God and depth and spirit. It's just we're habitually too preoccupied to have any of these, these things show up on our screen. We're more distracted than bad. We're more interested in um, our phone or the movie theater or the sports games than we are with church, peace, and spiritual life in general. It's interesting, even in the 1800s, uh, kind of the English Industrial Revolution, Charles Dickens and um, Dostoevsky, he wrote Notes from the Underground in 1863. They were warning in some of their writings that technology will enable humans to live in ways that are bad for ourselves. Technology itself isn't bad, good or bad, it's a tool, but it's opening up different modes of living that are gonna allow us to live in ways that are hurtful for us. It's gonna create possibilities, and if we don't have the moral fortitude to evaluate how we ought or ought not live, we might just drift into patterns of living that are hard for us. Ortberg puts it like this. Last quote, I promise, I think. For many of us, the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith, it is that we will become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it. So do you see what's at stake here? It's not just your emotional well-being, though we see how we do spill over and mistreat those around us when we are hurried. But perhaps what's more terrifying is that our spiritual lives also hang in the balance. Hurry blocks our ability to love others and to love God himself. So could it be that Dallas Willard, the philosopher on the phone, was right? that the biggest spiritual threat of our day is hurry. You can't help but wonder if perhaps Jesus would say to our generation what he said to Martha when she was running around and so busy hosting that she couldn't actually spend time with Jesus. He said to her, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed or only one. The call to follow Jesus is to walk with him at a slow pace. Walking is not fast. Loving is not fast. So that's the first part of this equation that we're looking like, looking like, that we are looking at. In our renewal, in the new life that we have in Christ, we are free from hurry and we are free for rest. Rest or the unhurried life, is, it's, it's kind of the bedrock. It's the foundation of the Christian spiritual life, which everything else is built upon. It's all predicated upon this. But for us today, we may hear the term rest and think that it's simply just being inactive. Rest isn't doing anything. Rest is just what you do when you're tired. We think perhaps that rest is what you do so that you can go out and work. Interestingly enough, Aristotle, ancient Greek philosopher, he described it exactly the opposite way. He said, we don't rest so that we can work. 
We work so that we can be at rest. Rest is the goal, not work itself. And there's a difference between resting and being lazy, or the church described it as sloth and the seven deadly sins. Laziness might be doing nothing, but rest can be active, right? You can go for a walk and that can be restful. You can spend a morning working in the garden, that can be restful. You can be hanging out with friends, that can be restful. I was thinking about this this morning, actually, that uh, kind of the last two years with in and out of lockdowns, during lockdown, I was exhausted all of the time and it really confused me. I didn't know why I was tired so often because I thought, I'm doing nothing. Why am I tired all the time? And it, and it just dawned on me this morning that I wasn't resting during lockdown. I was just being lazy. In this new pattern of life, in, in the lockdown living, I hadn't developed any rhythms of rest. I didn't know how to rest during lockdown. And so I was just being lazy. I was doing nothing. Yet the whole time I was being bombarded by all of my screens, messages, emails, computers, TVs, shows, updates, news. But I still wasn't resting my soul. So you can be a lazy person and yet you can still be exhausted. So here, that's a little tangent. There's a, there's a distinct difference between laziness and rest. So first, if we're trying to understand rest, let's first understand rest as rhythm. Rest as a way of setting a different pace for life. We see God modeling this in scriptures. We see Jesus doing this, and there's also commands for us. So let's look at Genesis 2, just verses 1 to 3. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all of his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it, God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. God rested on the seventh day. Now, was God being lazy? No. Was God tired? Was he taking a break? You know, six hard days. Whew, I need a day off. No, not at all. God was not tired. God does not get tired, but God did rest. Why? Why did he rest? I would contend we see God resting on the seventh day because he is having communion with his creation. He made all these things. He said they were good. And on the seventh day, he enjoyed them. And we rest to have communion with God. The Sabbath isn't just to rest. It's to rest in God. That's example number one. We also see in the life of Jesus, here's Luke 5, 16. It says, but he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. Many times in the Gospels, Jesus is recorded as doing wonders and signs, huge crowds build, many people come to be healed, and then Jesus departs. Even though there's plenty of other people to help and there's plenty of other work to do, Jesus would withdraw and pray and be alone with God and he would rest. And if Jesus Christ himself, the incarnate second member of the Trinity, perfect in his power and his character and wisdom, frequently drew away to be with the Father, how much more would we need to do it? How much more do we need to do it? And we also see God's desire for us to be at rest. We see God's desire for us to be at rest as well. It's in the Ten Commandments. He says, honor the Sabbath and keep it holy. But in Psalm 46.10, it's put very beautifully. He says, be still and know that I am God. Be still and know that I am God. 
It's interesting that he made a, a commandment. Sunder gave that interesting illustration that God didn't make us to obey the commandments. He made the commandments to bless us. God didn't make all these rules and then think, hmm, it'd be great if I had some people that these rules could apply to. No, he made us. And then he made the law as descriptions of parameters of how to live and how to flourish. It's like the phone call with the philosopher. God said, hey, this is what you need to do. And he said, you're going to be tempted, perhaps to work all the time, maybe to make an idol out of work. Work is a good thing. There was work before the fall. Don't make an idol out of this. Don't do it. That's a false way of living. I have better things for you. Firstly, be still. One of the, one of the meanings of this phrase in the Hebrew is to take your hands off. Hands off. Hands off the plow. Take your hands off your phone. Hands off the keyboard. Hands off your task at hand. Take your hands off. And secondly, know that I am God. Be still and know that I'm God. If you read it backwards, it says, hey, I'm God. So you can be still. I am God. Just relax. Just rest. Perhaps a word for the modern world could be this. This is a, it's an old pastoral phrase. I don't know who said it. Stop trying to be gods and realize that we are gods. We are God's workmanship. We are his glory in creation. We are his children as well. Stop trying to be God and recognize that we are God's children. He is a good father. And when we rest, we're not only creating these rhythms of life, but rest is also a form of resistance. When we rest, I'm saying that I am more than my output. Life is more than production and consumption. I am not my work. I am more than my work, actually. There is more to life than work. My identity is in Christ and my relationship with him is the most defining aspect of my identity. So when we rest, we are resisting opportunities and forces in our world that would ever so subtly push us into other directions, into other patterns of living, into other rhythms of worship that are incompatible with loving God and loving others. So let's take stock. We've, we've covered a lot of ground today, but today we've looked at this fact that our life of renewal as Christians, this new life that we receive in Christ, and the renewal of the world involves two things. It involves being free from hurry, and being free for rest. That this rest, this unhurried life, allows us to love God and to love the world around us. So how, how do you today need to understand this, this freedom from hurry and this life of rest? We're trying to do, it's very funny, you're prepping a sermon and then you see all these things that apply to you as you're doing it. We're trying to train our dog. He's about a year and a half. Um, so he's still, he's like fully grown, but he's still fully puppy on the inside. And we're trying to do calm training. We're trying to train him just how to be calm, how to be still. And I see God's word doing calm training with me. So for most of us, our freedom from hurry and our life of rest will involve us to deal with this thing. This is probably the biggest inhibitor to our rest and peace and one of the biggest sources of, of hurry in our life. There's always something pressing, something happening, a text, a call, an email, an update, something that has to be checked. Or you get updates about other people. Oh, did you see that this person made a tweet? Did you see that this person posted on Instagram? And now we got to stay hurried and being up to date with everything else because we might miss something and then we're exhausted. 
During COVID, um, I shouldn't speak in past tense, uh, during early parts of the lockdown, a hobby that I picked up was hunting. And my mother-in-law said, oh, this old man lives down the street from me. He's really into hunting. You should go talk to him. And so I knocked on his door. I said, old man, teach me about hunting. He said, no problem. Sat me down. And for 45 minutes, he just ranted about two things. He ranted about how much he loves his wife and the dangers of technology. He went on and on. He said, these, these kids walking by, they have chicken guts hanging from their ears all the time. Chicken guts. And I said, chicken guts? What do you, what do you mean, chicken guts? Oh, headphones, headphones. He said, yes, yes, the chicken guts, the, the white things that hang from their ears. They're, they got the chicken guts and they're, and they're staring at the, the glowing rectangle in their hand and they're missing all the world around them. And I thought, what does this have to do with anything? But it's kind of like the karate kid, you know, like, why am I painting the fence? Oh, I get it. He said to me, are you able to sit still for a long time without technology? I said, yeah, I think so. He said, great. You're going to have to do it for about six hours every morning if you want to hunt. And so you, you climb up into this tree, and I sit, and I just listen, and I just watch the world. And the first hour, I'm, I'm, I'm twitching. I need a fix. I need my dopamine hit from my phone. But after that, you just get into this beautiful place, and you start to notice I notice things about leaves and about the wind and about the sun that I've never noticed before. And after those, those six hours, I climb out of the tree. Maybe I didn't get a deer that day and people say, oh, that's too bad. That's too bad. That was, that was just a waste of a day. And I thought, no, it wasn't. That was like a day at the spa. That was beautiful. And so I started asking myself, okay, how come I can't have that kind of peace and tranquility and rest in my everyday life? And so I've, I've tried to adopt little practices of my own. One of the things that I've tried to do in my rhythm of rest is um, before bed, five minutes before I go to sleep, phone off, lights off, and I just try and stretch before going to sleep. Stretching, focusing on my breathing, praying uh, actively if there's anything that I need to get off my chest. But a lot of times it's just a quiet stillness, listening to God, being in tune with, with how I'm feeling physically, spiritually, listening, just spending that time. That's one example. Recently, though, my wife asked me just not to have my phone near the bed at all because she says, no, in the mornings and the evenings, you're on your phone, you're not talking to me. And so these are things that I'm trying to add to get rid of things that would inhibit my spiritual intimacy and also my love with others. For you, what do you need to add? What do you need to take away in order to add these rhythms and in order to resist other pressures? Is there a practice you need to add? Do you need no social media on Sundays? Maybe uh, a helpful rule I'm trying to implement unfaithfully is um, I don't look at my phone until I've spent time with God in the morning, right? Phone is not priority. Time with God, that's the first thing that happens in the morning. Maybe you need to talk to your friends, to your family and say, hey, do, do you notice me getting distracted in certain ways? What are practices that you think I could do as well? This is very broad. We've covered a lot of ground today, but this is the bedrock. In the next two weeks, we're going to be looking at more specific areas where once we have this rest and this peace and this open space in our life, how do we engage with God and how do we engage with others? We've just been going broad across the top. But what witness would we bear as a church, as Bayview Glen or the church around the world, if we were a presence of peace and renewal in the midst of an anxious and busy world? 
It's a fundamentally different understanding of what it means to be human, of what's desirable and what's good and what constitutes the good life and what ultimately brings fulfillment. So here are the, the two questions I want to send you with and I want us to reflect on actually for this next minute. Do I have the silence to hear God's voice and do I have the space to follow God's leading? Do I have the silence in my life to hear the still small voice of God and do I have the room in my life where I can respond as I'm being led? So church, I'm going to give you this next minute and perhaps ask these questions almost as a prayer. And then I want to invite you just to be still and rest in this. So let these questions sit in your mind, but try and still yourself and just sit and breathe and enjoy God's presence for the next 50 seconds as you meditate on these questions and listen for what response that God might have for you today. Church, may you be still and know that he is God. <laughs>